Welcome to Timothy Eden Memorial Church, a place for life. Connect, participate, celebrate. Well, summertime is a, a, the time when we keep things a little bit more casual here, and so sometimes, uh, even at the 11 o'clock service, we preach down from the chancel steps, so that's what I'm going to do, even though, uh, you know, keeping it casual is maybe not um, the theme of this scripture passage that we're reflecting on today, but uh, hopefully if I'm a little bit more casual, it'll set all your minds at ease about this uh, very challenging scripture passage. Let's take a moment to pray. Gracious and loving God, your word is so precious to us, and it sometimes challenges us And it sometimes comforts us, and sometimes both. And uh, you know, oh God, that we need both your challenge and your comfort. And so we pray you would speak to us this morning, and that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. You are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. So this passage from Genesis that Nippur read for us a few minutes ago has been the topic of heated debate uh, in the church from the very earliest days and probably within Judaism before, before that. It's a passage that has been studied and analyzed by scholars. It's been torn apart and argued over by people in the church and and academics for centuries. And that's because it is a deeply disturbing scripture passage. And all of us, when we read this passage, should feel a little bit anxious, a little bit disturbed if we're reading it carefully. In the past, Many in the church have have read this passage and kind of with a bit of a nostalgic smile said, you know, oh, the faith of Abraham, the faith of Father Abraham, would that I had such faith. And some still do read this text uncritically, saying that Abraham's favor with God was confirmed because he was ready to slay his son in sacrifice, and that Abraham is the grandfather of perfect faith because he is ready to give up even his only son if and when God so asks. Could any of us do what Abraham is said to have done? Gosh, I sure hope not. At this particular time in history, it was not only common for people of various cultures outside of Judaism to practice human sacrifice. They did so at what they thought was divine command. They thought it was required. They thought it pleased their gods. And the one who was being sacrificed considered it a great honor. Nowadays, most cultures throughout the world would consider Abraham's actions despicable on every level. It's unethical, it's criminal, it's psychopathic, and it's beyond any sense of reason. 
Abraham, of course, is a biblical character who did demonstrate tremendous faith in so many ways. He was a man of deep, great faith who always listened to God, who talked with God, and he was in constant communion with God in an intimate and personal way. And his example is one that we should strive to uh, follow in many ways. But the question underlying this passage is, was Abraham as faithful to his God, one true God, as the Canaanites around him who worshipped other pagan gods were? Was Abraham as faithful to his God as they were? And this is Abraham's dilemma. If people worshipping false deities could carry their religion to that terrific cost, how could Abraham show that his God meant as much to him? By imagining the desperate conflict that went on in the mind of Abraham, what we actually have in this story is a deep and dramatic truth. Here was a great soul living with a difficult dilemma. His problem was about how to be faithful, how to be a faithful servant of the one true God in a complex world. This story is about Abraham's crisis of faith. We know, in hindsight, that God would never have allowed that sacrifice to happen. We know that, right? Um, God doesn't ask us to harm another person in order to prove to him our faith, even if they offer themselves, which Isaac was not doing. But sometimes when we have a strong dilemma like this, it can feel like God is asking us to do something that we absolutely dread, that's hard for us. Abraham knew that the people around him were offering up their children to show their faith and obedience to their gods. In spite of the torment to his soul, he could not help hearing an inward voice asking him why he as a man faithful to the one he knew was the one true God of the universe, should not be willing to do as much as they were willing to do. That thought pressed upon him in a way that challenged him on the, on the level of emotion and on, his, on his, the level of his sense of personal worth. And it challenged his very identity as a man of faith. And so Abraham was convinced that this must be the voice of God. One of the questions this raises for us is why God didn't step in sooner to stay Abraham's hand. Why did it get to that level uh, of, of uh, anxiety and distress that it must have brought? Well, the very first line of the passage, as Nupur read for us, tells us why. It says, this is, this is challenging, it says, after these things, God tested Abraham. Now, this is not a story that we can take literally in our context, right? Rather, it should be read as a testimony to the work 
and hand of God in Abraham's life. For those who have done hearing God, this is not a, a general word for all believers. This is a particular word for Abraham's life. It's too disturbing for us to think that God might test Abraham's or anyone's faith by asking him to kill his son, even if that was something that people believed in that time and place. But God allowed the dilemma, the dilemma to sit in Abraham's mind for a while, right? God allowed Abraham to sit with that dilemma, with that question, thereby prompting Abraham to ask the question of himself that we also need to ask of ourselves. And this question is, what does Isaac represent to Abraham? What does Isaac represent to Abraham? Well, Isaac represented many things to uh, Abraham. He represented a myriad of, of attitudes, of beliefs, and of attachments that distracted Abraham from complete faith and dependence on God, distracted him from making God the absolute priority of his life. From the very beginning, Abraham's relationship with Isaac was rooted in the belief that Isaac would give his life meaning, right? This was a cultural standard that said that a man's true identity and value on this earth was determined by the legacy he left through his progeny and by what he was capable of doing as, as a man to prove his strength and superiority over others. It was a very human-centered cultural belief rather than the belief that God alone gives, our, gives us worth and value as human beings. Now, obviously, that doesn't mean that Abraham should kill Isaac, <laughs> right? Just that he needed to redefine, and this is what God is bringing into Abraham's consciousness. He needed to redefine Isaac's role in his life. Isaac couldn't do for Abraham what God alone could do. In fact, it would be a huge mistake to think that God would require Abraham to kill his son to, to uh, prove his devotion. That boy was no threat to the Almighty God. Some have argued that God just wanted to uh, see how far Abraham would go, right? And that, and that Abraham knew this and trusted in God enough to know that he wouldn't really have to kill Isaac. I don't buy that, uh, that interpretation uh, of the scripture because I, I don't believe that God plays tricks on people or plays games with our heads or with our emotions. I don't think that that is how God interacts with us. It is fair to say, however, that God challenges us and that God asks us to make sacrifices of another sort. If we think of what Isaac represented to Abraham, it is fair to say that God may ask us to give up things that distract us from our relationship with God, that separate it, that get in between us and God. Things that the world may accept and encourage wholeheartedly because everyone else accepts them as normal. 
but that God may be asking us in the name of our relationship with him to step away from. So for example, God asks us to give up attitudes that we cling to, uh, such as arrogance and pride and resentment and self-centeredness. These are attitudes that get in the way of our relationship with God and with other people. Sometimes we think that we have obtained or have achieved something under our own steam and by our own strength that gives us our sense of worth, our sense of value, such as a, a particular job or a special knowledge or a unique skill or a talent. God sometimes might ask us to give these up in order to teach us humility, dependence, and complete faith, to recognize that all we do and that all we uh, have and all that we are is purely a gift from God. It's not something that we are owed or something to which we are entitled. Everything we are and have is a gift from God. Sometimes God also asks us, asks us to give up behaviors that are harmful to ourselves or to others. And I think that, I'm not going to go into it, I think just through common sense, each one of us can think of all kinds of examples of behaviors that are harmful to us and to others and, and are contrary to the will of God. But also, although the Christian faith places great value in relationship, right? Relationship is such a central part of our faith. We also know that not all relationships edify our lives. And if it becomes necessary to walk away from a relationship that detracts from our faithfulness to God, that act requires that we have tremendous faith in God, right? Sometimes people are asked to walk away from an abusive relationship, and that takes a huge act of faith. If we have a weakness for any kind of destructive behavior, anything from consumption of harmful substance to substances to cheating on a spouse to gossiping and nitpicking, and we have become attached to a particular friend or family member who encourages that behavior in us that we know is harmful, then common sense says that it's better to break that relationship, to, not just, to just not have that person around us, right? Rather than clinging to the feelings of security and acceptance that even harmful relationships can provide for us sometimes. God asks us to trust in him, to find another way of living, a better way of living, and that is a way of putting our relationship with him above all others. God asks us sometimes to give up certain attitudes and behaviors and attachments because it is our human tendency to depend on them, on those things, for uh, for our feelings like security and validation and meaning that we should be seeking from God alone. Now, that doesn't mean that we have to walk away from all relationships. We're not asked to go out into the wilderness and, and be hermits. Well, some people are, but not most of us are not, right? So we're not asked to walk away from all relationships, especially those people who actually draw us closer to God, 
right? You probably have, you maybe have a godly spouse or, or family, mem- family that really encourages you in your relationship with God. One friend and mentor told me that he prioritizes his relationships in this way. It's always stuck with me. He says, God first, family second, everything else third, right? God first, family second, everything else third. And, and the everything else, he said, includes the church, right? Because we were talking about ministry, and it's very easy for ministers to fall into the trap of seeing their ministry role as the source of their worth and the core of their identity, right? And you see, you see that happen when people can't let go. And, and anyway, that's why we were talking about it. So what are our Isaacs that we cling to? What are our Isaacs that we cling to? The things outside of God that we have come to believe give meaning to our lives, give value, give us our sense of identity, the things we think define us. As Paul says in the passage from Romans 6, he says, just as you once presented yourself as slaves to these other things, so now present yourself as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. So what are the things in our lives that we become slaves to, right? And are we ready to offer them up to God and present ourselves fully as servants of God, trusting that he offers us a better way of being in the world? This is the true test of our faith. This is the thing that God wants us to forfeit in order to show us that he is trustworthy and dependable, that he alone provides our life with meaning and worth. When we are willing to give up our attachment to the worldly things that we cling to for security and identity, then we demonstrate our willingness to trust and believe in the God who has told us that our lives will have peace and joy when we relinquish those attitudes and behaviors and attachments that erode, our, that erode our humanity and our relationship with God. God does test our faith sometimes. Not so that we can prove to God how faithful we are, but so that God has the opportunity to demonstrate to us that he is always faithful, and dependable. And that's the only way that our faith can grow, right? When we're tested in some way, and we really have to lean fully into God, and we learn that God is dependable and faithful. Abraham passed the test of faith when he remembered his prior experiences of God's faithfulness. And when he believed with all his heart, with all his heart, that God always fulfills all of his promises. He says God will provide the ram, right? And when he trusted in God alone to provide his life with meaning and value and to define his true identity. The most important part of this text is what Abraham learns from the experience, which is found in verse 14. It says, so Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. He called that place the Lord, this place that might have had 
uh, difficult memories for him. No, he called it the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Abraham's faith was tested to the furthest limit so that God could show him that God alone is the source of all that is good and loving and true and peaceful and joyful and meaningful in life. This man of great faith had his faith tested and came out stronger because of it. God asked Abraham to trust without reservation in the goodness and faithfulness of God, who has given our lives meaning by graciously and lovingly calling us into fellowship with him. Our identity, our, the meaning of our lives is defined by who we are in the eyes of God, who God sees us as. God sees us as his children. That's who we are. That's our identity. We're children of God. We don't like tests. <laughs> we don't like tests because they're difficult and they threaten our sense of security, right? I'm in doing my doctor ministry right now and I, I don't have to write tests, but I have to write essays and, and I don't like it, right? It's a challenge. It's, it, it threatens my sense of like, do I really know enough to do this? We don't always pass our tests. We could fail, but we know too that growth is only possible if we are willing to be tested. And so it is with our faith. God does not ever ask us or want us to take the life of a human being, our own or anyone else's. God is the God of life, not of death. Everything that God does for us, everything that God gives to us, everything that God requires us from us, is for promotion of life in its fullest, abundant life for all on earth. God tests our faith, not so that we can show God how strong our faith is. God tests our faith to show us how dependable and how faithful God is. And God is the one, the only one, we can always depend on and who gives our life worth and meaning. Thanks be to God. Amen.